0: Mary Cairns, my husband Brian is here somewhere, we're going to do a half-half-split presentation and I'd just like to open open in prayer before we get going. Thanks everyone for coming. I out how to use this. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing all these people here. Thank you for our heart's permission. Uh, thank you for loving us. and yeah, Despite... Uh, how we look to you without your son. We ask that you would send out workers into your harvest for mental health. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. I love looking around and seeing some familiar faces, some people I hope to get to know later. My name is Mary and my husband and I, Brian, are psychiatrists and family med docs. And without further ado, we're going to go through slides, share some cases, and then uh, have to hopefully end with time, plenty of time for questions at the end. Of course, we always have objectives, so we're going to talk about global mental health in general, we're going to share some cases, uh, and then we're going to make a case for integrated care and collaborative care, some words that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, If anyone is interested, we recommend you download the free WHO Gap app, Android or on Apple phones. I do have some hard copies over here if you're interested in browsing it. uh, We just ask that you not take those without asking us. We're happy for you to take it if you would use it, Uh, but uh, the the free app is pretty great. We're going to talk about who we are. Uh, That's repetitive. All right. So. Brian and I both docs. We met in residency down in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's an interesting program where it's a family medicine psychiatry dual program, kind of like MedPeds, but less well-known. And uh, we went to Cameroon in 2016, serving at Bonso and Bingo Baptist Hospital. Who here is familiar with those hospitals? Some hands. Yeah. I know we've got even... a uh, a Cameroonian physician here with us today. hey, Dr. Nora, hey. Uh, and they put up with having a couple psychiatric-minded family physicians for a few years. Uh, and then we're planning in 2020 to go spend some time uh, working at Tsuma Counseling Center, uh, providing mental health care for missionaries in, in Kenya. Unfortunately, Cameroon has some political instability, but we're not able to go back there right now. We've done some short-term trips to other countries as well. We have a new organization, Global Outreach International, and prior to that we were serving with Samaritan's Purse. Uh, We've been experimenting with sort of a unique model of being overseas nine months a year and then working back at Ohio State University three months a year for a variety of reasons. We're happy to chat with anyone afterwards if they're interested in sort of atypical missionary models. Uh, And we used to say that we are more than happy to have rotators come work with us overseas in Cameroon, but that's on hold right now because of uh, the instability. Okay. So jumping right in, what counts as global mental health? Raise your hand if you went to Rahel's talk right before this one. A lot of people. So friendly souls in the audience. So uh, this will be maybe a little repetitive but with a different twist, maybe more of a clinical uh, twist so uh, the World Health Organization divides it into, I would say, sort of three categories. So there's mental, which I call psychiatric, so things like mood disorders, like bipolar and depression, uh, anxiety disorders, and trauma-related disorders, substance use, I'm sorry, psychotic disorders, and then cognitive or intellectual impairment. So that could include children with developmental disabilities, autism spectrum, traumatic brain injuries, or uh, geriatric adults with dementia, HIV dementia even. Uh, and interestingly enough, World Health Organization counts neurologic conditions under mental health. Controversial. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, So if you see on um, the image MHGAV uh, an abbreviation MNS, it's for mental neurologic and substance use disorders. And I always have to throw one at the end, medical. Of course, there's always medical conditions that masquerade as, as psychiatric, right? <laughs> Some quick stats, which is kind of a review again from Rahel's talk, but I feel like we just can't say it enough. This is a huge problem that often is ignored, especially, I would say, in religious and Christian communities. One person dies every 40 seconds in the world from suicide. And one out of every four persons in the world, in this room, will be affected at some point in their life with one of these disorders. And about two-thirds of them will never seek treatment. And currently, depressive disorders are the fourth leading cause of global disease burden. They're expected to be second by 2020, so so what, six, six weeks from now? And then by 2030, they may actually be the first, sort of the leading worldwide cause of disability. Throwing in a photo here to keep you awake, this is a psychiatric hospital in Rwanda. And for those of you that do some work abroad, you'll recognize sort of a typical ward setup with beds very close to each other. Uh, the, the patients right now are sort of out in a group therapy, uh, dirt, dirt roads, etc. cetera. Some more stats. So 40% of countries in the world have no mental health policy. Uh, and then a quarter of countries don't have the three most commonly prescribed drugs for schizophrenia, depression, and epilepsy. Again, WHO considers epilepsy to fall under mental health from a statistics standpoint. We'll talk more about what those specific medications are and what I would say if you take nothing else away from my talk remember this, there's only one psychiatrist for 100,000 people in most countries in the world there's never going to be enough psychiatrists here's sort of a motivating quote uh, from WHO about how mental illness is not a personal failure uh, but um, perhaps our way that we respond to people with these conditions is Another okay. psychiatric hospital, this is the one in Cameroon, again, where I've probably spent the most time. It's in the, the capital city of Yaoundé. I like this picture. This is their seclusion room. So anyone who works in mental health knows that sometimes when people are violent and trying to uh, keep, them safe, keep them safe, we put them in a seclusion room. Well, this one, the door is broken, the lock is broken. No one knows quite where the patient is. I think they eloped, kind of jumped over the wall. So I wanted to ask you in the audience, think about your patients, I'm assuming you work in healthcare, your patients or your family members. Try to think about who is the most annoying, most difficult patient in your whole career. Maybe maybe we are thinking of non-patients, right? Friends and family members. But think about that person and what it was like for you, Uh, how you saw others interacting with them, maybe how difficult it was to feel loving towards them, to act loving, to provide care, right? So we all have someone in our minds. Uh, And and I like to use phrases like modern-day leprosy. So I I think back when Jesus was around, lepers were like this. No one wanted to touch them. They had to go off somewhere on their own. Um, Lots of stigma. and Religious communities even jumped on board that stigma and added a lot of other uh, baggage to it such as it's your fault always, it's always because of your sin, it's always because you don't pray enough, etc. So I really do, in general, think that mental illness often is seen as a modern-day leprosy, or in medical speak, I think of leprosy equivalents, right, from a stigma perspective. I remember in medical school uh, seeing a lot of patients that irritated people, and most people didn't want to take care of them. And, and at the time, you know, you're a med student, you're sort of narcissistic. You think, well, I'm going to take care of them all, right? <laughs> uh, now, in reality, probably people looked irritated at them because they were they were burnt out, and, uh, you know, they're busy, and they were sleep-deprived, as most physicians are, right? So it's more complicated than that. And I think most of us kind of get a hero complex at some point in our training. Uh, that's a tangent. All right. I, uh, just another, I guess comment I like to put out there is I do think that mental ill patients in general are a type of unreached people group in a way Um, but also a potential strategic entry point for introducing people to Christ we talk about how Christ looses the chains and frees people well literally when you treat someone with schizophrenia that's been chained up for 10 years like the chains are gone Uh, it's not even like a Christian metaphor it's like literally the chains can be taken off And then this quote that I've heard a lot uh, this year, and I I love uh, this idea of whatever we do for the least of these, we do for for Jesus. So think of that really annoying, difficult person. And how does it change how you see them if if you think of that being uh, like Jesus, how you would treat him. All right, enough sort of theology here. Going back to practical things. So medications. I'm sorry, the screen is so small. Uh, familiar with the WHO essential medicine list? Anyone? Let me just look at it. Yeah, some nods, maybe. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a great list of things that WHO tries to, I think, encourage countries to have available. Uh, again, these are really tiny. I don't want to belabor it. Um, I would say, in general, these are the ones that we have found to be available, like in Cameroon or in most of parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And then, if we eliminate the ones that are too expensive. Uh, then you very quickly uh, have very few options. So for psychosis, we have the chlorpromazine, thorazine, uh, and then Haldol uh, mostly are the pretty affordable ones. And we're talking uh, for, what would we say, $4 a month or less to treat this? So much cheaper to get someone out of chains than even building an expensive OR. I'm pro-surgery. I'm pro-ORs. Oh. <laughs> but I do think from a cost-benefit perspective, this is also uh, very realistic Uh, For depression and anxiety, there's amitriptyline, and some places have fluoxetine, which is an SSRI. Uh, That that tends to be more expensive. Sometimes that can cost people's whole monthly salary, Uh, but amitriptyline is is pretty affordable. Uh, Bipolar disorders, mostly it's carbamazepine, which is tagritol. Uh, And then I included anti-epileptic drugs. Again, the WHO considers epilepsy to be statistically similar to mental health conditions, or in the same category. So... And by no means are we experts in treating epilepsy, <laughs> although I have prescribed more phenobarb overseas than I ever thought I, I would. Can't give a global health talk without bringing up sustainable development goals. Uh, and I'm not going to go over all these, but number three is the one I think we spend most time at one. This is the health and well-being. And we're really happy, other than the millennial development goals before, these didn't really mention mental health at all. These ones do mention it. It's a little bit sparse, but if you go to target 3.4, they mention reducing mortality from non-communicable diseases. Well, mental health is a non-communicable disease, right, or mental illness. So we count that. And then 3.5 mentions substance use. So so we got to mention. We're happy. Uh, Who's heard about this, this term? Neglected NCDs? Forgotten NCDs? So NCD stands for non-communicable disease, um, mostly known as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, ischemic heart disease, et cetera. Uh, Well, there's been some articles in the last few years in the Lancet and other uh, journals just talking about how there's other non-communicable diseases other than diabetes and heart disease. And mental illness falls under that. So it's too small uh, to see from where you're sitting, but essentially... uh, this big piece of the pie are communicable diseases from global death causes. This, a quarter of the pie are non-communicable diseases. And then the 30% here is actually the neglected non-communicable diseases that we're talking about. A huge amount, right? I remember, I think a, a year or two ago on camera, we started doing more work with non-communicable diseases, lots of trainings came in and everyone was focusing on those, which is wonderful. But the next step then is to talk about the neglected ones, right? All right, another slide, global burden of disease. I hope people have seen these pictures before. It's a little bit overwhelming, but I like them. Uh, it, it sort of shows uh, at a glance the prevalence of things. So blue stands for noncommunicable illnesses. Red stands for communicable, maternal, neonatal, and nutritional. And green stands for injuries. So this is the U.S. I'm just going to highlight the mental health pieces here. Uh, so, mood, anxiety, et cetera, substance use, and then in the green accident section is self harm or suicide. So not insignificant. Let's go switch over here to sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, what's the difference? Well, there's a lot more communicable maternal problems. A nice visual aid. But mental health is still pretty pretty visible, right? All right, some more numbers. The top here are mental, substance use, and self-harm. Uh, so this category is the percent of people, like the deaths we see from them. So the, death, the percents of deaths we see from these aren't that high, right? Maybe 2% of deaths. Uh, as opposed to cardiovascular disease, 32% of deaths. However, if you go into the other columns, disability, adjusted life years, years lived with disability, then mental health conditions uh, drastically increase and actually even take over cardiovascular disease if you're just looking at the numbers, so 12% of disability-adjusted life years and 27% of years lived with disability, uh, as opposed to cardiovascular disease, 15 and 4%. So. Again, it's not a competition, uh, but I, I, did, I do agree with what Rahel said, that uh, I don't know that people quite know the numbers and how neglected these have been. I'm almost done with the boring statistical slides, and we'll get to some cases. Uh, from a prevalence standpoint, back in 2017, anxiety disorders were probably the most common around the world. And remember this for a bit later. I'm going to ask you a question to test your, your memory, right? your, your cognitive function. All right. uh, depression comes closely after anxiety disorders. And then substance use, bipolar, etc. All right, this is my last hard-to-read graph slide. This is actually a study in the U.S. And... I love this slide because it basically tells us who is seeing these patients, like right now. So all the depressed people or all the schizophrenic people who go and get help, what kind of providers are they seeing? Are they seeing psychiatrists? You no, know, someone's shaking their head. It's, I guess it's kind of rhetorical at this point. So actually in cities, this column is psychiatrists. So in, in urban areas in the U.S., yeah, if you have depression, you, you have a 60% chance of seeing a psychiatrist. A quarter of you are still going to see a primary care doctor, so an internist, a family med doc, maybe a pediatrician. But if you go to smaller towns or rural, that turns on its head. A quarter of you in a rural area in the U.S. are going to be able to see a psychiatrist, but most of you are going to need to be treated by someone else. And then if I can be that person that adds my own bar to the graph, this is the rest of the world. Okay? So in the rest of the world, there's no psychiatrist. So who's going to be treating these patients? It's going to be generalists. Internists, family docs, pediatricians, specialists even. right? There's just not enough psychiatrists. So whether you want to treat these patients or not, whether you're trained to help them or not, you're going to be seeing them. The next question then is, how do we help make you and others more comfortable, feel a little bit more competent to, to help the least of these, right? Here's where we talk about collaborative care. Silos is a metaphor we use in healthcare to talk about sometimes how it feels like each condition gets treated by a different person, right? So you go see your endocrinologist for your diabetes, and your kidney doctor for your high blood pressure, and uh, maybe your oncologist for your thyroid tumor intermission. Uh, and, And this is very much sort of a Western developed country way of managing illness. We do have primary care, and there's, uh, a lot of emphasis on that, but I, I, I would like to just say that I, I sort of see our patients more like this. <laughs> so we would like them to fall into these neat silos, but what really happens is it's messy, right? And, and illnesses don't always fall into one category. Sometimes something will look like an endocrine problem, and it ends up affecting their heart, or it'll look psychiatric, uh, and end up having another cause, right? Uh, so I was trying to search for a little bit more of a useful, holistic metaphor I am from Oregon, so we love tree huggers, right? So I, I found a picture of all these trees. We're, yeah, we're different. We have different emphases, but can we all grow up together and kind of integrate uh, and coordinate instead of have these separate silos? Has Anyone seen this book? Raise your hand if you've heard of Where There Is No Doctor. A lot of people. A very common global health book. So this is a wonderful book. There's a candle version. This is like version two. Uh, Vikram Patel wrote it. Uh, We give it as, like, prizes when we work overseas for people who learn to do some of it. Uh, And if you're into TED Talks, uh, he has a pretty good TED Talk talking about basically collaborative care and how we need to help people, non-psychiatrist people, learn how to treat these patients. Just like a generalist is comfortable prescribing metformin and insulin, why can generalists not be more comfortable treating schizophrenia So here's where we get to talk about image gap. Again, there's a free download, uh, apps. I would say browse it if you find your mind wandering uh, from from our soothing voices while we're talking. Here's just a picture of it. So uh, there's different versions. It comes in different languages, and it's exactly for this that it was written. So to treat these disorders in non-specialist health settings, they talk about scaling up services, uh, so this idea that if we train people, we can kind of scale up services so it's easier for people to access these services. So what is imageGAF? Basically, it's algorithms. If you do have the app, feel free to just browse it or pick up one of the books over there just to look at. Uh, it's basically clinical decision-making algorithms. Now, I don't know about you, but in medical school, I was kind of taught that you can't distill medical treatment down to decision trees and algorithms, right? It's complex. It's an art of medicine. Uh, that we're trained to to use our brains for, uh, and and these decision trees are just oversimplifying. I I still agree with that, but I've also seen um, psychiatrists internationally doing some really dangerous things. So actually our nurses that we train to follow this probably are prescribing safer than some specialists. Uh, Controversial, right? Sometimes maybe we think that our training protects us from, from doing... Inappropriate care, and it doesn't always. So so the World Health Organization designed this for physicians, nurses, also health workers, health health planners. Uh, And, and, you know, they can't teach all mental health in one manual, right? Uh, So they, they had to kind of pick and choose which conditions to include. They tried to pick ones that were a large burden, that were expensive for economies, and also were associated with human rights violations. So if you're able to look at, here's a table of contents, again, very small. You'll see things like depression, psychosis, epilepsy, neurologic, right? That's our silo here, for sure. Uh, child, there's a child disorder chapter, dementia, substance use, self-harm. Uh, and then in the other chapter, it talks a little bit about, like, conversion disorder, somatization, and things. What's missing? Here's your cognitive test as an audience. Yeah, I don't know why there's no overt mention of anxiety and PTSD. I will say, like, in this last chapter as, like, a footnote, there's, like, a paragraph about PTSD. But the longer I work overseas, the more, the more just so much is related to trauma. So it's not perfect. All right. So we've done some training seminars. Uh, We did four of them in Cameroon in English. We went to Chad and did one through a French interpreter. I don't know that I want to do that again. That was hard. Uh, although, if you're interested in having an yet seminar, wherever you work, uh, please send us an email or talk to us. Uh, we, we try to be creative in how we teach it. We did some lectures, and we had role plays, games. And we had some of the students like, teach each other. I don't know about you. When I was in school, I really didn't like role plays, but I do think that the things I had to role play stuck with me better than anything else. So, so, therefore, now as an educator, I do a lot of role plays. All right. This is, uh, anyone here know what an OSCE is? Yeah. <laughs> so, OSCEs are a med school thing where we're forced to, like, that's how I experienced it as being forced, <laughs> to meet with a, a fake patient or standardized patient. It's an actor that gets paid to act like a certain illness, and we get graded on how well we interview them. So so after the seminar, we actually had our our trainees, nurses, and some physicians interview our standardized patient. So this is Itouai. He's a mental health social worker. He's a really bright guy. uh, And he was a great schizophrenic actor. And so she's smiling because I I think uh, she's just laughing at seeing her colleague that she knows pretty well, looking like someone with schizophrenia. (laughs) Uh, They had a lot of fun with that. And we gave them feedback. All right, and as with any training, we know, it, you know, it's easy to lecture people, but what are they actually doing out in the real world? That's uh, kind of where the rubber hits the road. Uh, so we try to provide supervision by phone. WhatsApp, we still provide supervision by WhatsApp. I still get WhatsApp messages almost every day with some of these nurses presenting cases uh, and giving me the workup and asking what next to do. And usually they actually already knew what to do, and it's appropriate, uh, but it's a kind of a fun way to be connected. Uh, and then in person, this is, you know, when we drove out to the little health centers in the village and tried to meet with them in person and see some patients together. Alright, last slide before Brian takes you through some cases. So collaborative care. This is a picture of the WhatsApp. This is like a case presentation that one of them typed out. Oh, I see a lot of smiles. I think a lot of us talk about patients over WhatsApp, right? Did you know you were doing collaborative care? So this is a concept that came out of the University of Washington. Uh, Mayo Clinic picked it up and is doing research. Uh, And it's this idea that with specialists, you don't have to be the one providing the care. You can be available to the generalists to help them, uh, as long as they have kind of a basic level of knowledge. Uh, and, and, And then they can provide the care, and therefore you can reach more people. And it's been shown to improve outcomes in developed countries for diabetes. A1Cs are lower. Blood pressures are lower, less risk of heart attack, or less rates of heart attack and stroke. Um, There's different ways to do it. But I I do think when you're reviewing cases from a distance, uh, that's a form of collaborative care. Pat yourself on the back. And and now that you've come to our talk, grab our business cards and feel free to email us if you are interested in running cases by us. We love it. it. Encourages me to know that other people are doing this. So I will pass the mic on to my better half. He'll take you through that interesting.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, if I'm speaking too softly, just yell or throw something at me and I'll try to speak more loudly. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to talk about some cases that we saw in the field. And even though we're calling this a, a, a lecture on global mental health, really these are only pertinent to the country and city in which we saw them. And every, every place is so individual. Um, this is actually the... Uh, Christian church in Abeche, Chad, which is up in the far northeastern part. It's the only Christian church there. And the lady in the back in blue, Dr. Ann, um, found a really good way to bring um, the, the Muslim uh, population to church is give them free health care. Uh, so she set up uh, a mental health clinic in the church and um, it really had a lot of folks coming to it. Uh, the first case um, was this 42-year-old lady uh, who came in and she had about two years uh, with symptoms of depression, uh, a lot of tiredness, didn't really um, have motivation to get things done around the house, and had never gone to see a generalist, mostly because there wasn't one, um, but also because she believed that she had a djinn or a demon that was causing the symptoms. And we would see that Quite often, that uh, mental health problems really were um, conceptualized as spiritual health problems. Um, With each of these cases, what what I am wanting to do is kind of go through some of the cultural, social, and spiritual factors um, that were relevant. In this lady's case, uh, you know, I took her history. really sounded like major depression until she took her LeFi off and she had this huge goiter, um, which was indicating low thyroid, which could have been a major cause for her symptoms. Um, So certainly culturally, as I mentioned, in this town, there really were not very many medical providers. Now, maybe if if her neck had been visible, somebody might have noted, hey, you have a a mass on your neck. Um, But also in you will see this mentioned in pretty much every case. There was shame, shame of seeking treatment for what she saw as either a spiritual attack or laziness. Right. Um, And socially, a big social factor for this case is that the salt um, in a bedshade generally is not iodized. Um, You know, we're lucky that we, we get iodine in our diets. Well, um, even though levothyroxine, uh, the medication, was available, really the first step to treating hypothyroidism in this town was to say, instead of going to the market and buying salt from a salt vendor, go to the the store, it's more expensive, get the iodized salt. Um, Spiritually, uh, that general conceptualization of mental health issues that they're really more of a spiritual illness Ingestion of ink, I thought this was really kind of an interesting uh, thing. The children in this town would wear amulets, um, and they were Quranic verses that had been cut up very small and put in the amulets for protection from the demons. But when somebody had the demon, a way that the imam would treat it would be to write out the Quranic verses and then pour what I'm assuming was water... (laughs) Uh, over them into a vial, and then you drink the vial. Well, who knows what's in the ink, whether there's any heavy metals or other toxins in there. The second case was a 17-year-old, um, this is in Cameroon, who was admitted to the hospital with compartment syndrome in her left forearm, um, basically where the, there's a high pressure buildup due to infection or other causes, um, and After about two weeks in the hospital, she disclosed to one of the chaplains that this had been a suicide attempt by injecting uh, gasoline into her arm. Um, It was, you know, she'd had a fight with her boyfriend, and it was a boyfriend that her parents didn't know about. She had a history of abuse, um, getting a lot of pressure. And by the time she left the hospital, uh, she wasn't suicidal, but a large part of what happened beyond the surgeons addressing this acute issue was that the nursing staff and the chaplains were working on facilitating some communication between her and her parents. Again, with the cultural aspect, there's a lot of shame with having these thoughts, any thoughts of hurting yourself or feelings of of worthlessness. This is going to sound really strange, but there's also fewer safe ways to make a suicidal gesture in these communities. In the U.S., if a teenager is really crying out for help, and maybe not at the point where they're wanting to hurt themselves, but that's, that's in their mind, the way that they can get that message out there, you can go on Facebook and post it, and probably within an hour you'll have a sheriff at your door. Um, You can take a non-lethal dose of ibuprofen. I mean, there's there's different things in our country that people do as a gesture versus when you're in a really resource-limited area, there aren't as strange as it sounds, there aren't as safe of ways to make suicidal gestures. And so sometimes kids will do things like injecting with uh, gasoline or hanging, things that that really can be quite lethal. Also socially, in a really paternalistic uh, society, um, you know, in, in this country, teenagers are going to talk back to their parents. And certainly, I know Dr. Nora never talked back to her parents, but, um, you know, in, uh, it, you know in, in countries where it's very paternalistic, that dialogue between pa- uh, parents and teens is going to be less common. And spiritually, because of the spiritual conceptualization of mental illness, oftentimes folks who are suffering, the first contact that they're going to have is going to be with a pastor or a chaplain. And so providing clinical education to the clergy really was an important step in trying to uh, increase awareness of mental health issues, um, trying to help get people into treatment. Oops. And I apologize, I'm going kind of quickly through these. We have a few that are interesting. this guy uh, was unfortunately an all-too-common case, um, a 33-year-old guy with HIV who presented to the hospital with delirium. Um, and for anybody who's not familiar with that, delirium is basically when your body is so ill from something that your brain begins to shut down. So severe infection, um, uh, cancer sometimes, uh, sort of a medically induced, we can present as psychosis or disorganized behaviors, etc., so he showed up to the hospital, and he had had three days of acting mad. And um, he was immediately triaged to the mental health nurses. And they saw him and recognized that this didn't seem like a normal psychosis in the, uh, you know, in the schizophrenic sense or the bipolar sense. And after a couple of days, um, uh, this guy got a lumbar puncture that showed cryptococcal meningitis. And he did unfortunately die from it. And it was indicative of kind of the necessity to recognize when something that is odd, is this a a mental health problem, is this a medical problem, is this a spiritual problem, and trying to improve the triage system that comes with that. So culturally, you know, um, within the hospital system where awareness of mental health problems is a bit greater, if something weird comes in, it's psychiatric, Instead of thinking, what could this be? It's, oh, this is weird, it's psychiatric. And then outside of the hospital where there's not as much awareness of mental health, if it's weird, well, it's spiritual or we just don't talk about it, okay? We're not going to talk about that. So don't get help until you absolutely have to, right? And so things can get really out of hand and get really severe before somebody comes in to get help. And then spiritually, um, this was a question that I got from the chaplains quite often when I got there was, well, is this, is this a demon? Is this dopamine? Is this a demon made of dopamine? Um, <laughs> of course, I was like, mm. um, but, but, it, you know, it raises an interesting question. This is, um, in can everybody see this? Like in the back, can you read it? ish okay you, i don 't like reading slides, but um, so this is uh, sort of a differentiation between some symptoms of psychotic illness versus uh, sort of the uh, catholic church 's uh, standardized symptoms of demonic possession. I, I think demons are probably a little more savvy and are like oh we can 't do that that 's not in the list um, but um, with possession it 's often having sort of extra-human characteristics of superhuman strength, speaking languages that the victim can't know, uh, like ancient Latin or ancient Greek, um, uh, having knowledge that the person, there's no way the person could know that, or having these blasphemous outrages with a lot of religiously focused profanity and things like that, versus a psychotic illness we see presenting with symptoms of disorganized thoughts or disorganized speech, Delusions like being hyper religious or paranoid, um, or feeling like your body's dying, um, or having hallucinations, auditory or visual hallucinations. And then also some other medical illnesses that might look demonic to somebody uh, somebody who's having a seizure, or somebody who's just had a seizure. and then there's even more esoteric things like this autoimmune condition that can basically attack the brain and, and make somebody have uh, psychiatric symptoms. Um, there's a book called Brain on Fire uh, written by a person. Um, and uh, I can't remember her name, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's about a woman who is suffering from that disorder. And we see scripture, and you know, we see in the Bible different places where um, people who were demon-possessed. Um, I'm going to trust that the Bible said they were demon-possessed. They probably were. Um, and, uh, but who looked like what we might think of as somebody appearing acutely mentally ill. Uh, Matthew 8, 28, um, with the extremely violent man. Um, this one with a boy who shrieked and convulsed and looked like he was dead. It sounds like a seizure. Um, uh, another man, you know, uh, and actually her help mentioned this one in her talk, about the man crying day and night among the tombs and cutting himself. Even to the point um, that this one, Jesus casts the demon out of the person. It summarizes with him being described as dressed and in his right mind. And it shows us, well, yeah, that does kind of look like somebody maybe suffering from mental illness. I tried bringing a herd of pigs onto the inpatient unit once to try and get... Don't do that. It um, doesn't go well. <laughs> So, how do you if, if you 're in a rural setting and you have somebody and you don 't know that they 're mentally ill right? you just know that they 're acting really strangely, and to the best guess that you have it it 's a demon it 's something inhabiting their body. What do you do? Unfortunately, most of the time you end up having to tie the person up um, these are I put before and after, so these weren 't totally depressing. Um, but mostly, I want you to look at, you know, this guy. This is the same guy before treatment, after treatment. He's, his uh, ankles are tied with a rope here. His hands are tied similarly, having to be moved around in a wheelchair. This lady who suffered from dementia with psychosis, um, her family, the best that they could do to keep her from wandering off and, and dying of dehydration or getting hit by a car was to, to tie her up in the yard. Um, this guy here uh, has bipolar disorder and he's manic. Basically, he's living in a, a supercharged state where his judgment's impaired and he can't stop moving. And his poor mom, she can't get him to not be manic, but what she can do is kind of you know, like steer steer with the reins. She could at least direct him where he was going. That's what she's doing by tugging on him. And this guy in Abeche, Chad, um, had schizophrenia. And you note here these bars on his ankles and wrists, they don't have hinges. Those are solid pieces of metal. His family took him to the blacksmith, they bent the bars on, and they don't come off till he goes back to the blacksmith. And while we see this as being so inhumane, it's, it's what people, it's the best they could do. It's not that they don't love these people, they, they love them enough to tie them up. I know that sounds strange. Um, so, you can probably guess what the first thing in cultural is. Shame. Right, there's shame. If you think that your loved one is possessed by a demon, that means that they or you did something wrong, right? And so maybe keeping them in the house so the, the neighbors don't see them. But even if the neighbors did see them, this is kind of an acceptable means of control culturally. Um, socially, you know, the neighbors aren't going to report you to the adult protective services group that doesn't exist. Um, they're going to say, yeah, you're, you're trying to at least keep the person in your family safe spiritually. Is basically what we had been talking about was the the question of whether the person is suffering from an illness or a possession or, or both. This and because um, there are people here who worked at a hospital similar to here, I will say. I know everybody here, and I know this person, and you don't know this person, so don't worry. Um, But this was a a sad case of a a hospital worker who had two months of worsening paranoia and started accusing her co-workers of conspiring against her. And eventually she expressed homicidal ideation towards a pregnant co-worker uh, and was becoming violent and had to be hospitalized against her will. One of the sort of culturally interesting up, uh, uh, barriers to try, and help, to try and help this lady was that uh, one of the chaplains in the hospital, it's, it's a very different structure where um, the chaplain was actually able to, to an extent, override the medical decision. It got kind of, kind of ugly as to how to approach it. Um, she was eventually... Oh, that's my daughter, Elizabeth. She's trying to help. Remind me when I forget things. Um, she was finally admitted, um, but she was not improving... Uh, with treatment with an antipsychotic risperidone, uh, she was HIV positive, had a normal CD4 count, meaning her her uh, uh, immune system was still functioning well, uh, but she did have a positive test for syphilis, um, although her her uh, spinal test was negative, and so there there is a false negative rate for neurosyphilis, which can present uh, psychiatrically, um, and in this case, kind of what we had to do was. You, Nothing else was working, maybe it's syphilis, so we treated for neurosyphilis, and she did show some improvement, which is good not not great, but but some improvement with the treatment. Um, so pardon me <coughs> getting over a, a cold there. Um, and so this case had a lot of different aspects about culturally you know sexuality uh, being shamed outside of marriage. Um, and within the system, the ability to be uh, a job being terminated if somebody becomes uh, pregnant outside of marriage, the stigma of HIV and sexually transmitted infections in general. And then a, a dual relationship that we don't see in the states so often. You know, here, if, if I have a, uh, a mental breakdown, I'm probably not going to get hospitalized in the hospital where I work by the people with whom I work, or also my neighbors. But when there's one option, that's what you go with. Um, And also, the dual relationship of someone who is maybe working in mental health and works with people who are suffering from schizophrenia, other people within the health system, well, I don't want to work with them because what if I catch it? What if they give me the schizophrenia that this other person has? And then also with with cultures that are much more communally focused as opposed to individualized, maybe privacy isn't as valued or it's valued differently. I think would be a better way to say that than we might see it here in in, uh, the West. Socially limited access to prophylactics and sexual education, um, lack of of some of the formal procedures that we might think of in our hospital systems for impaired providers, or uh, workers suffering from mental health problems, and then spiritually, um, there is a lack. When somebody is suffering with something like HIV, let's say, their first contact might be going to the chaplain to talk about the stress that they're having with this. Well, what if you don't trust the chaplain because the chaplain's also one of the bosses, and that that um, uh, confidentiality might not be as strong there, and so that kind of kind of makes it an awkward situation. And uh, think of it in the sort of the screw tape sense of, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is how the demons are working. But, you know, make us not trust each other. Um, let me see, I'm done for time. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, also saw a lot of substance abuse. I won't go into the, the details of, of this case, but... Um, see a lot of uh, tramadol abuse, um, as well as these alcohol sachets. You'll see them lying all over the ground. They cost the equivalent of about 20 cents, and they have the equivalent of two shots of hard liquor in them. So it's a pretty cheap and easy thing to get. Um, and the tramadol often will, you, know, you can get a coffee by the side of the road and have somebody put tramadol in it for like an extra I don't know, a quarter or something. Um, and people say that it gives them strength, it helps them to concentrate better, and they can work more. Well, culturally, maybe it's not so bad because it's not like a drug drug. It's not like cocaine, right? It's a prescription drug. I am just don't have a prescription for it. And socially, if it gives you strength and it gives you focus, and you're a subsistence farmer, and the more you work, the more you make, and the more you eat... Why not? Right? It's cheap. It works. I'm going to do it. Does that kind of make sense? Um, and then spiritually, maybe in the, in the community, whether, you know, whether it's a Christian community or a Muslim community, if there's a prohibition against drinking, what do you do? Well, the best kind of drinking. Drink alone. Um, you know, I, mean, I say that jokingly, but you know, that's going to lead to a pretty unhealthy drinking pattern. Um, you know, If somebody is struggling with alcohol, and then also, some hallucinogenics may give somebody a, a sense of having a spiritual experience, and, and maybe that actually would lead them to do it more. Things like, um, I always say it wrong, ayahuasca, I think is what it's called, um, LSD, stuff like that. Um, this this case is probably the most interesting To me, it covers a whole lot of uh, different things, Uh, so I saved it for last. Uh, This was a a 13-year-old guy who was admitted to the hospital with uh, um, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Sorry, I'm blind on what what that stands for. Um, Basically, somebody who's having physical evidence of seizure activity, but if you did an EEG on their brain, you wouldn't see um, evidence of a a neurologic seizure. Um, It doesn't always necessarily mean the person's faking the seizure, It's just that they're not having a seizure in the way that we would define it. Um, But when he was admitted, it was found that he had ambiguous genitalia um, and uh, symptoms of uh, uh, delayed sexual development or disordered sexual development. This this kid was in a really tough position. He had started to develop breasts, so his friends were making fun of him. Loved to play soccer, uh, but it was painful. Um, He was starting to have... uh, menstrual cycles and um, his genitalia was such that he had a a very small penis and then the scrotum was divided into the labia with a very small vaginal opening and when an ultrasound was done there was a remnant of a vaginal canal as well as a small uterus and some ovaries or testes. We really didn't know. But then that brings up the, the issue that this is and I want to be really clear here. This is not the same thing as a transgender debate, right? This is an intersex issue where, um, you know, he was born with both organs, as it were. Um, but he's grown up being a boy. And we had just a whole lot of different thoughts about how do, you, how do, how do we approach this? Um, And it was interesting that we had local physicians and visiting physicians on very different ends of the spectrum. We had one um, African surgeon who said, you know, percentage-wise, it's more female than male. So he just needs to become a woman. And other folks saying, no, there's plastic surgery and testosterone supplementation. He identifies as a boy. Help him be a boy. Um, And, uh, sorry, um, you know, in a small town... It's not like you can kind of disappear, right? I mean, if he suddenly goes from being a boy to a, a woman, well, you just have to move, pretty much. And that's not as easy as, as it is said. Um, hold on, we're just going to... Um, and even CMDA has, you know, a, a position on issues like this in cases of, of intersex, um, you know, and, and, and commenting on, on the care that uh, should be given, Culturally, though, so let's, let's see, now we get into autonomy, right? This kid's uh, growing up as a boy in a male-dominated society with a desire for sons. So was this noted at birth and his parents wanted a son? So, okay, well, let's direct this kid towards feeling like a son. Who knows? There's really not, uh, sex and gender minorities really not spoken about. Regardless of what your theological views are on it, it's just not talked about as much. Um, socially well there 's more power being a male this kid 's going to have a better life as a man than he would as a woman um, and as I said if, if something changes it's you know you can 't just do that and have people accept you you probably are going to have to move to a whole different town, possibly even a whole different province and the The limited health care infrastructure means later diagnosis, limited treatment options. And then, from a spiritual standpoint, do we have a few more hours? Like, this is a huge issue, right? We're not going to get to the bottom of that. <laughs> um, but a really interesting case. And um, as treatment was delayed, it was um, uh, he started developing some conversion symptoms and some psy- uh, symptoms of psychosis. And, um, quite sad. I, I'm curious now how he's doing. Unfortunately, I don't know. So common themes among these cases, one, shame is a major player when it comes to mental health care and getting mental health treatment, and then lack of access, lack of money for treatment, um, spiritualization of mental health problems, and community uh, investment over individual investment kind of play large themes in how to approach these illnesses. As Mary was saying, really, to, to get more mental health care worldwide, it really needs to become a more integrated function of uh, primary care providers and those, those, uh, the people that you know, will be seen. Uh, you can have a great psychiatrist, but if nobody goes to see them, it's not going to help, right? But if you're going to be seeing um, a community nurse, uh, a family doctor, what have you, let's focus there trying to in- improve awareness and helping with treatment role modeling, things like point-of-care learning. Um, trying to have humility huge because, you know, we're um, coming into a, a different culture, but it's weird because you're coming into a Western medical culture in a non-Western societal culture, and there's lots of... Uh, ways to offend people in that process and trying to really work and and come to a good outcome so that you're working together to help folks. Um, Stigma, uh, trying to help decrease stigma, increase awareness of mental health problems. Um, I tell my patients, and this is true, um, that I have OCD. I take medications for obsessive-compulsive disorder. There, it's out. Okay, great. You know what? Somebody's struggling with anxiety or depression? You know, it's okay. There's treatment. We can help. Um, and then this uh, um, other, these are just some other public health things that we were working on when we were in Cameron about uh, traumatic brain injury prevention with trying to distribute motorcycle helmets. And um, this question about nurse prescribers, we're not talking about nurse practitioners here. This is um, people with uh, very basic nursing training learning to prescribe. Is that better than nothing? Is it more dangerous? And that's a whole other discussion. Uh, This is um, one of their uh, No Health Without Mental Health posters. It's actually, they're pretty funny if you can get up close to read them and and look at some of the drawings, but uh, that was one of their anti-stigma campaigns. Oops, Mental Health Support Group. And these are just some wards in the hospital. One, one thing that's helpful is if you do have somebody admitted psychiatrically on a ward, you really don't need a sitter because the family members have to stay with them at night at all times to be caregivers, so that's, that is helpful. Um, so in conclusion, just uh, lots of challenges in infrastructure. Uh, the the Gap really is a really cool program, and even if you don't have any interest in using it, take a look at it. It's really neat how it's set up um, and trying to get into a more integrated care system is really going to be I think one of the best ways to try and help the most people Um, so thank you for your time
0: We're happy to take questions. I know we crammed a lot in there. Yeah. We do want to just uh, thank you. Dr. Nora and yeah. the Palmers over here. There's sort of a lot of our mentors, longer and Cameron. Yeah. A lot of the where do two psychiatrists go and they don't know how to figure things out. Well, they <coughs> missionaries. Right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Question. Did you uh, actually see any patients that did have demon possession?
1: Um, so just because this is being recorded, the question was whether we, saw, whether we saw any patients who did have demon possession. Not that I know of, um, or at least uh, none that, you know, in general, they responded to how at all. So it was unlikely to be demon possession. Um, and, and then that did actually raise though, an interesting question in approaching how do you explain mental illness. So when you're seeing a whole bunch of people in a limited amount of time, is it better to explain that this is a... A neurologic process that's causing these symptoms and not a demon, or is it better to say this demon doesn't like Haldol, so take it? It really is an ethical question. What do you do to get people treatment and maybe kind of explain it later?
0: But, but I do want to say also, I, I mean, we pray with all our patients against demons as well as prescribing Haldol. Um, we're certainly on a personality spectrum, not necessarily going to be a sort of a dramatic Uh, casting demons out kind of thing, but I I don't know that that's what Jesus requires either, right? Uh, I do want to quote my dad. He's a Christian psychiatrist. He says that demons are pretty smart, so they're just as likely to be in politicians as they are to be in schizophrenia. Yeah, in,
1: in the back... The question was, have we looked into using telemedicine or smartphone apps um, to improve mental health availability? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, The the biggest barrier, at least in Cameroon, is getting the computer equipment on the other end and reliable Internet transmission. Um, But the smartphone app with WhatsApp and even using the video chatting on WhatsApp really has improved a lot of access.
0: I'm sure a lot of people in the room have done that. I mean, you can send videos of like this weird twitch that someone has, and then and we can look at it and be like, that looks like Huntington's, right? It's just amazing. Thank you for bringing up telemedicine, it's probably the f- part of the big future of missions, whether we want it to be or not. Yes. So the question is, when we were abroad, how did we explain this to our patients, right? So patient education is a huge part of providing any kind of medical care, but especially, I think, psychiatric care. We were really fortunate in Cameroon, we had these Cameroonian mental health nurses, and so they bridged that gap a lot of times for us. They had a really cool way, in pidgin English, of explaining to patients uh, just exactly how, in their culture, they would understand. Um, so I could we could talk for hours on how we might explain it, but ultimately then like the mental health nurse would step in and like in 30 seconds and the family would be like, oh, okay. So uh, that's sort of a non-answer that it's complicated.
1: No, but I, I think as a general approach, I mean, if, I'm, if I have something that's difficult for me to explain to somebody, I'm not going to try. I'll go talk to Dr. Nora and say, hey, how would, how would you explain this to the person? Um, and while you're at it, could you explain this to the person? <laughs>
0: that's funny. I mean, we would try. <laughs> Other questions? So her question is, are suicidal gestures largely specific to developed countries? No, we can't say that. So I would say the statistics in developing countries are just not there about these things we did not see nearly as many suicidal gestures there as we saw here. And what is a suicidal gesture? So uh, like a cry for help or self-injury that's not lethal, uh, things like that. Uh, so whether statistics bear that out, I, I can't really say. But, but we did see a lot of folks that would fit a demographic where here they might show up with a suicidal gesture, and there it was near lethal, and they probably almost
1: died. Yeah, I, I apologize if that was ambiguous, but not to say that it was more common, in in low- and middle-income countries. It just manifests very differently because of the the limited ways that you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. What are the roles that uh, therapists or clinical psychologists trained abroad can play in abroad? Yeah, so the the question was about um, the role of uh, therapists and clinical psychologists in treating folks abroad. Um, It's so individual, it's hard to say what the rules are. I will say with, with the 13-year-old guy, I sat down with Itoe, our psychiatric social worker, and the patient and did about an hour of therapy at the end of which Itoay said, yeah, none of what you just said made sense to him. And I was like, oh, I wish you would have said that earlier. Um, but yeah, it, it's just so individualized knowing um, not just language-wise, but conceptualizing the way we ask questions and the way we interpret answers.
0: But I think your, if your question was, what are the roles? I think the roles are huge. And there are a couple Cameroonian psychologists, one of whom is former chaplain. Well, I guess you're not once a chaplain, always a chaplain. I don't know. <laughs> but then went to Canada and was trained as a psychologist. And he's an excellent therapist. Uh, and, and so if we had really tough cases and he was in the area, he would travel a lot. We would ask him to sit down. But, you know, one session with a psychologist, it's not very much, right? Uh, so we just need we need more more workers in the harvest field, so to speak, Right anyone interested in uh, training more psychologists. I I know East Africa has several psychology training programs. West Africa not as much. I see you nodding. Perhaps you you could... Don't, Don't forget there. Thank you. Yes, clinical social workers, such as, each way we worked with as a social worker, he is such an intuitive therapist, and you're right, a lot of, even in the U.S., most of the therapy that happens, for instance, at Ohio State where we work here, is is the social workers. Thank you for saying that. Other questions? If you
1: have any afterwards, we'll be around. One last question,
0: and then we'll wrap up, but we'll be up here. Great question is, how do you treat conversion disorders? Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. It would take probably too long to explain in this setting, um, but there are definitely ways to treat it, and we found them to be effective in this culture as well as other cultures. And uh, MHGAP actually has a whole section with some bullet point suggestions of what to do. Um, And so if if, uh, you have a specific case, we're happy to chat with you about it afterwards.